0: Welcome, my friends, to the Bob and Brad Podcast. My name is Mike Peanuts, and today I am interviewing Joel Proskowitz, who is a spinal rehabilitation specialist. He teaches both of the Stuart McGill's clinical and performance courses and is one of only two people in the world who teaches for Professor McGill. Today, we'll be talking about back pain, spinal surgery, as well as prehab and rehab exercise things he recommends for people. So without further ado, here is Joel. Well, welcome to the program, Joel Proskowitz. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Mike. So we're going to get right into the questions. My first question is, can you give us a little bit of information about your background?
1: Sure. Be my pleasure. Well, you know, first, I want to say to both you and your viewers, thanks very much for having me on as a guest. Uh, I'm hoping what I can share with all of you today will be useful in some manner or form. But uh, I started off my life in this world uh, nearly 30 years ago, uh, qualifying as a personal trainer, funny enough, back in South Africa when I was still living there. And pretty much from the first day that I qualified and I got into work, I started to deal in the world of musculoskeletal rehabilitation. And in South Africa, we're working a lot with uh, knee rehab and shoulder rehab. And through my own adventures in life, I actually injured my spine. I fractured my spine many years ago. And uh, it was in about 2004 that I got introduced to Stu McGill's work uh, in the form of his clinical textbook called Low Back Disorders. And in 2006, when I immigrated to the UK, uh, I met Stu uh, in person. And uh, I'll, I'll share the story very quickly. But uh, I pretty much harassed him because I wanted to understand how I could uh, look after my own spine. And uh, I got to meet him. And he said, Joel, literally, I've got, you know, just a few minutes, we can sit, we can have a chat and see what can happen, if I can help you. And that turned in uh, to three hours. And three hours has now turned into nearly 20 years that I've been working side by side with uh, Dr. McGill, which is a huge privilege and an honor for me. Um, and Mike, pretty much, I'm very involved in the world of spines. That's that's all I do. I don't do personal training anymore. I left that world. Um, I've got a personal training facility in the UK, but uh, I only deal in spinal pathology. I'm very involved. I sit on A medical, uh, a spinal medical team here in the United Kingdom. Um, I have radiology rights as well, so I'm able to refer patients for radiology. Uh, I observe surgery on a weekly basis uh, with uh, a surgical colleague of mine. So uh, everything and anything I do, and as you can see, uh, my obsession uh, filtrates through to all the models that I have uh, to educate my patients on how best to look after their problems and how they can get back to doing the things they want to do.
0: After your senior your spine anatomy collection, I think we need to up our game over here at Bob and Brad.
1: <laughs> I think I, w- I, w- I was talking to, to the gentleman who, who uh, makes these for me, uh, Mike, his name's Jerome Fryer from dynamic disc designs. And he said, Joel, he goes, I make this stuff. And he said, I think you've got more in your office than I've got in my own office. <laughs> the, the obsession.
0: Yes. Okay, so where can people find out more information about you?
1: So simply uh, they can find out information about me on my uh, training website which is performancerx.co.uk. Uh, that's my gym, that's where I work from. Um and then I've got actually a spinal resource company. Uh that's in the process of uh Turning into quite a, a solid resource for individuals called the Spine Exchange. Um, and people can find us at thespineexchange.com. Uh, uh, I'm sure you'll put links in, in the show notes and to our YouTube channel. Um, so that's pretty much where they can get me. And one other form of coming to me is through Dr. McGill's website, which is backfootpro.com. Um, and I'm the, uh, the master clinician here in the United Kingdom and I represent Backfoot Pro here. Uh, in, in the UK.
0: So do you want to talk a little bit more about spine exchange? How does that work exactly your website?
1: Sure. So interestingly, in June of 2020, I landed up as a spinal specialist, I landed up having a spine fusion for myself, because as I mentioned earlier, many years ago, about 30 years ago, I actually fractured my spine And uh, it was through that that I got to meet Dr. McGill, and uh, I managed to offset any surgical interventions uh, right up until June of 2020, when, unfortunately, in the midst of COVID, um, I really started to get uh, signs and symptoms that I knew I was getting to the point of where I had to have surgery. So my surgeon and myself uh, and Dr. McGill, we, we sort of sat down, we planned what was going to happen. Um, I got very involved in understanding what instrumentation my surgeon was going to use, uh, what the pros, the cons of the surgery were, and essentially what could potentially go wrong. Because in any surgical procedure, things can go wrong, and they do. And I went in for what we call a 360 fusion, and that's where... The first part of the surgical procedure, the surgeon enters through the front of the uh, of the uh, uh, abdomen, and they remove the disc and they insert a cage. In fact, I've got I've got one to show the viewers. So this is a, a spinal fusion cage that they fill with bone graft, and then they place that between. In my case, the L5 and the S1 vertebra. And uh, I woke up from that surgery, and I was feeling fantastic. Right. And then I went home and then I had to go back the following week to have screws and rods put in my back. And it's these here. So they then turn you around, they lay you on your tummy, and then they place these pedicle screws. In fact, I wear one of them that was actually from my spine. And they connect them with rods to create a really strong fusion construct. And what happened is I woke up from that second surgery, Mike, and I had the most outstanding leg pain, and pain that I just had never experienced before. And uh, anyway, to cut a very long story short, uh, my surgeon absolutely saved me. Um, it wasn't any fault of his. Um, in fact, if it wasn't for him, I wouldn't be where I am today. And But I landed up having another five surgeries on top of my two index surgeries. And uh, when I finished that, which was over a period of 12 months, I I had seven spine surgeries in 12 months. um, I was a different, I was a different man completely. Um, The surgeries changed me. Um, I was, I'd been in a place mentally, Mark, that um, I didn't know that a human could actually go to. And, um, it was terrible because, um, you know, especially as a, a spinal specialist, I thought I'd made a major mistake and I shouldn't have gone for the surgeries and what am I going to do? How am I going to rehab all of this? And born out of that actually was the spine exchange because I started to speaking to some of my patients who had had surgical procedures and they were saying to me, but you know, Joel, you know, we can't speak to our spouse or we don't want to bother our kids and tell them about the pain we're feeling today. It would be so great if there was a forum that we could all sit and just, have a chat over Zoom and you know share our war stories, and that was actually the start of the Spine Exchange, uh, which uh, that launched at the beginning of, of this year, and uh, and what has actually happened, Mike, is that it has morphed into something way bigger than just a community forum for spine surgery patients, and in fact, it's turning out to become a very comprehensive resource. For everything and anything to do with spines and spine surgery. So um, you can't, people unfortunately can't see what's going on in the background because there's an immense amount of work that we're actually doing on it uh, on a daily basis. But hopefully within about the next four to five months, uh, there will be a lot of free to user content on there where people can uh, read about uh, interventions, different interventions. There's a lot of interviews with different spine specialists and spine surgeons and pain management consultants. And essentially what it's turning out to be is a comprehensive resource for verified information for a back pain, neck pain, or spine surgery patient. So that's what the Spine Exchange now is turning into.
0: That's a pretty great resource. I mean, there's so many people that have back and neck pain nowadays.
1: Well, you know, the interesting thing is, Mike, you know, people come and see me on a, on a daily basis. And a lot of people have said, you know, Joel, we've picked up one or two things in social media, and which I totally understand. Because, you know, where do people go for information these days? That's, that's the number one resource. But uh, a lot of things have given out quite definitively. You should do this for back pain or you shouldn't do that for back pain. And as Dr. McGill will say all the time, it, it really depends because what you give someone is very specific to their pathology, their problem, their pain, uh, You know what their, their spine can tolerate. And what may be really good for one individual could be the exact mechanism that causes problems for another. So what we're trying to do is not prescribe and say, oh, do this and re- resolve your back pain. We're trying to get people to think a little bit more and and learn uh, empowerment skills to make the correct decisions, either to see a certain clinician, to see a certain surgeon. So we really want to guide them toward the people who we believe have got uh, significant experience and skill to assist patients and maybe slightly move them away from uh, individuals who are out there to potentially sell something uh, regardless of who or what is in front of them.
0: Sure. So speaking of Dr. Stuart McGill, we'll get into my next question. He often recommends virtual surgery before regular back surgery. Can you explain what that is?
1: Absolutely. So he writes in uh, in his book back Mechanic about the concept of virtual surgery. So what he's putting forward to a back pained patient is he's saying to them, if you've had a surgical procedure, if you have, you know, if I tell you right now, you've just had a major spine surgery, you're not gonna wake up tomorrow and go walk 10,000 steps. You're not gonna wake up tomorrow and go be able to do a Pilates or a yoga class or, uh, you, you know, go and deadlift. What you're going to have to do is give your time yourself time to go through a healing process, that initial stage of allowing the tissues to settle down, the inflammation to settle down, you may have to move in a certain way, which he terms spine hygiene, and he utilizes things called the movement tools. So, how to move without putting more stress through your spine while you're going through that initial stage of healing and/or rehabilitation. So he's saying to a back pain patient. Instead of deciding you've now given up, right, because you haven't found a solution to your back pain, why don't you try virtual surgery? Why don't you wake up tomorrow morning and imagine you've had spine surgery and move a little bit differently. Use the movement tools, use spine hygiene. Tie your shoes a little bit uh, in in a different way to how you've been doing it previously. Um, When you go for a walk, why don't you go for a 10-minute walk and do that maybe two or three times a day instead of going for a two-hour hike in the woods. And if you can do that, and that gives you an element of resolve to your pain, it reduces your pain, you then may be on the right track to avoiding a surgical intervention and being able to um, empower yourself to allow your back to settle down and then gradually build up from there. Because, Mark, anyone that has a spine surgery, they don't wake up the next morning and all of a sudden they're walking You know, 5,000 steps. It just doesn't work that way. Now, the interesting thing is, because I get to see a lot of pre and post-operative spine surgery patients, I've got many, many spine surgery patients who come to see me six, eight, or 12 months after their original surgery, And they wonder why they're back in pain. They've re-herniated their disc. Their fusion hasn't taken place. And you go through all the details. And the interesting thing is they woke up after surgery. They felt really, really good. So they decided that the pain is gone. They're now going to go back to doing everything that they were doing beforehand. And what they uh, tend to miss is they tend to miss that window of opportunity to allow everything to settle down and heal, which essentially is virtual surgery. So I hope that sort of gives a a simple explanation uh, of, of what Dr. McGill's concept is.
0: So did you try virtual surgery before you had surgery?
1: 25 or what, nearly 20 years or so. Absolutely. So for me, it was different because... I got to meet uh, Dr. McGill, and straight away, you know, him and I just—we uh, we, straight away—we were on the same page. And I followed everything he told me to do for a period of, you know, what, seventeen or eighteen years, and I managed to avoid surgery for that long, Mike. So, absolutely, I used virtual surgery. I used the spine hygiene concept and the movement tool principles. Um, my problem was because. I'm obsessed with lifting weights. It's what I do. Uh, I always knew that eventually because of the fracture, the natural degenerative process, the fact that I was still training, being smart about my training, eventually something was going to get to the point of where I was going to need that surgery. But I think if I hadn't met Dr. McGill, in fact, let me rephrase that. 100% know if I didn't meet Dr. McGill and he didn't intervene when he did Um, I probably would have had surgery way sooner with a different surgeon and technology was different, you know, as recent as five or six years ago in the world of spine surgery, the hardware that they use, the techniques that they use. And I don't think I would be in the same position that I'm in right now.
0: Yeah. Everything's progressed so much in that realm. So just out of my curiosity, how did you fracture your vertebrae?
1: Oh, I was, a, I was a nutcase as a kid, Mike. So I was martial arts. I was uh, I was a stuntman. I used to do uh, fight stunts for movies. So we used to get thrown into boxes and chairs and crazy stuff. And I picked up something called the spondylolisthesis, where the back of the spine, the, just the little bones fracture, and my spine slipped forward. Uh, also, you know, I, I was a, a bodybuilder, and I was mixing everything and anything. I was abusing my spine and my body. Uh, as much as I possibly could. And uh, it got to the point in my early 20s, funny enough, that uh, my spine pretty much gave up the ghost and pain became a constant presentation uh, on a daily basis. And um, I lived with that pain as I, as I said for you know many, many years, uh, you know, for uh, 20, 24, somewhere around there 24 years. Um, and I managed my condition for a very long period of time. But um, just to show you here, um, if I grab this model, just so your viewers know what what we're talking about. So this is the spine looking at it from the front. And then here we look at it from the side. Now, if I turn it around, you'll see right over here, um, there's tiny little fractures that we've put into this model. And that is a little bone called the pars interarticularis. Now, I have fractured it on both sides. And unfortunately, in my case, when it had fractured, the spine then slipped forward. So I'll show you the model from here. So it actually slips forward like that. And as it slipped forward, it then starts putting significant wear on the disc because the disc can't tolerate all of those forces and that movement within the spine. And the disc then obviously degenerated quite significantly over that period of 20 years, which I had obviously delayed due to my work with Dr. McGill. Uh, But eventually it then got to the point of where I started to get uh, significant sciatic pain. um, And I started to actually get neural deficit, meaning I was losing the strength and the motor function in my ankle and in my foot, what people would commonly refer to as a foot drop. And it was at that stage, Mike, that I just knew that uh, it's time for surgery.
0: I think that's a good leeway into our next question. In your opinion, when is spine surgery warranted and not warranted?
1: Big question, Mike. Okay, so let's talk about uh, the medical concerns as to when people should have surgery. So when there are red flags, meaning if you've got back pain and that back pain is intractable, it's significant back pain and it is accompanied by bilateral, most of the time, bilateral leg pain. So sciatic pain down either the back of your legs or even nerve pain down the front of your legs. And there are tangible, noticeable disturbances to the functioning of your bowel, your bladder, and your genitals, there's no question that that is a surgical presentation. That is what we call corda equina syndrome. So all the nerve rootlets that that collect at the bottom of the spine, so in the lumbar spine, before they exit the spine and go down your legs, collectively they are known as the corda equina. Now, if there's any compression on the cord requirer, that's a medical emergency, and in actual fact, that's when a surgeon has an overriding say that they can do surgery on you without your your your, your go ahead. Right? So you go to the emergency room. They see radiologically that there is cord requirer. They do certain tests, a little bit in uh, invasive testing, to determine if the genitals are functioning properly. Uh, and then they'll do sensation tests as well. And if those tests come back positive, they need to take you into the operating theatre, and they need to decompress the cord equina. Now, the cord equina can get compressed from many different things. It can be compressed from a disc bulge that goes straight back, not directionally to the left or the right, but straight back into the spinal canal and actually compresses those nerve roots. Uh, could, you could have a tumor or a cyst or anything inside the spinal canal that's compressing um, on those nerve rootlets. So that is unquestionably a surgical intervention. However, for people that don't have coronary quina syndrome, you've got to look at at certain signs and symptoms that indicate surgery. So probably the strongest would be a progressive neural deficit, and the word progressive needs to be bold and underlined, right? So, for example, if you have a foot drop, a neural deficit where that nerve is not functioning properly, however, it's not getting worse, and in actual fact, it's reached its peak of getting bad, and now, on a week-by-week basis, it's actually getting better, you can save yourself from a surgical procedure. It's when it's progressively getting worse. So, you wake up on Monday, you've got foot drop, but by two weeks thereafter, it's just worse, and now you're really dragging your leg, um, that usually is a surgical intervention. Uh, surgical interventions, as well as if there's any type of um, just intractable pain, the pain in your back is so significant uh, that just from a day to day perspective, you are able to do less and less. The pain is not, there's no element of respite, whether it's different positions. Uh, any pharmaceutical intervention, any injections. However, you and the surgeon need to establish that there is a proper surgical target for them to do surgery on, right? So having a little bit of back pain that you have good days and you have worse days, that's not a generally a surgical indication. So it's progressive neurological deficit. It's intractable back pain. Or obviously any of the red flag issues uh, where that surgery is uh, is called for.
0: So, speaking of surgery, how would you recommend picking a surgeon?
1: Oh, how would I recommend picking a surgeon? Uh, again, another big question. There are so many spine surgeons out there, and especially now, the young and up-and-coming surgeons have taken to TikTok have taken to Instagram to do a lot of their marketing. And again, that's not a good thing or a bad thing. It's an observation from my side of things because I live in that world, right? In, not in the social media world. I live in the world of spines and spine surgeries, So I'm seeing what people are doing. And interestingly, people, uh, especially surgeons, they can say a lot of things that can convince the patient that this is the person to go to. But I always caution a patient to just choose the first surgeon that you sit across the table from and one of the things i always say to patients and i do this mike literally every single week i have people contacting me from around the world saying joel can we have a zoom session with you can you tell us what we need to do to find that surgeon and i'll tell you straight away that I will give you a bank of questions to go ask that surgeon. And if that surgeon is not open to answering the questions, you know that's a red flag, because the surgeon should be there and should be able to answer any and every question you throw to them. And obviously, because of my experience, I disclose certain things to a patient that they can ask a surgeon that would really just the surgeon would think, okay, this is a. I'm hoping a good surgeon would think this is a very reasonable and very intelligent question. Allow, you know, I will answer it. I've had many patients call me back and say, I went to go see surgeon A, and he or she was not interested in answering any of my questions. They basically just told me that I should trust them and they know what they're doing." Mike, that doesn't sit well with me. Um, I think a surgeon should very much answer the question. And also, if you, regardless of whether they answer the questions or not, I always say seek a second and even a third opinion, right? If you have the resources, if you have the finances, if your medical aid or your medical insurance covers you, whatever it is, right? If you have the ability to have a second opinion and where you can compare things and uh, your gut feel tells you that the surgeon A was better than surgeon B, just the way they answered what they were saying. And obviously speak to their patients as well. Ask them to put you in touch with uh, their patients. The problem with that, Mark, is they're never going to put you in front of a patient (laughs) that had a failed surgical procedure, right? They're going to put you in front of uh, the, the ones that have succeeded. So it's difficult. Hence, and this is not a sales pitch, hence the spine exchange because we are interviewing surgeons from around the world, not just in the UK, but in Australia, in Singapore, in uh, all across the United States. Uh, In fact, I've got three US surgeons lined up over the next week, and we are asking them questions and putting them uh, on the spot so that the patient, the viewer, gets an understanding of who this particular human being is, behind the medical or surgical coat because you've got to understand who that person is. Um, In fact, if I may share a quick story, when we opened the Spine Exchange, uh, someone, not a patient of mine, just someone I didn't know, uh, purchased a a membership and got onto the Spine Exchange because he was uh, told he needed to have surgery. And through watching our expert interviews uh, with, with the surgeons, he resonated with one of the surgeons, and funny enough, you know, it, live relatively, it works relatively close to where the patient lives, and went to go see him off the back of the spine exchange interview, landed up having surgery with that surgeon, and has had an extremely successful outcome. So that's really what we're trying to do, get into the, uh, the inner chambers of a surgeon's mind and thought process so that we can help the patients that's the ultimate goal
0: what are a couple of the questions you have them ask surgeons
1: what is your patient journey right so how how do you treat the patient uh, are you open to discussing multiple different procedures and options are you open to allowing that patient to have a second opinion uh, what are your uh, what surgical procedures are you expert at right? Because Spine surgeons can do the whole spine, but some spine surgeons, especially as they move into their later years, they specialize in very specific surgical procedures. And then they refer all the other procedures to other different experts. Um, I'll ask them what their hardest case is. Uh, I'll ask them how they mentally prepare. How do they view their patients? What are their follow-ups with their patients? Um, So really all the questions that... uh, that patients, I suppose, want to ask, uh, but we do it over a period of an hour-long podcast, and patients generally have, what, 10 minutes, 15 minutes if they're lucky.
0: Jeez, those are good questions. Thanks, man. Okay, my next question for you is, Dr. McGill warns against trying new treatments and disc replacements. Is this something he and you both still believe in?
1: Again, I probably need to add context to my answer, Mike. So Dr. McGill and I, uh, obviously, as I'm sure you know, and your viewers will get to understand we're extremely close, I speak to Dr. McGill, you know, every week, Uh, we do discuss certain procedures, I tell him if I've seen any failed procedures, whether it's disc replacements, or stem cells, or a whole host of things. And so I can't really answer for him, right. But because I live more in that world now than, than, than Uh, Professor McGill does, uh, in the sense of uh, viewing all the different surgical procedures, being there, understanding, you know, what's happening in that medical world. But I will tell you this. In spine surgery, what I'm learning is that some of the old school procedures, the stuff that, you know, surgeons did five, six, seven years ago, compared to all the technology or technological advances and all the fancy stuff today still bear better fruit than what's actually coming out today. Because today the technology is still new, the robotics and all these fancy things, right, where 5, 10, 15 years ago, the spine surgeon didn't have that and they needed the skill of their hands. And those surgeons are a dying breed. And they generally tend to not use the newer technologies, they use the tried and trusted stuff. And then the new end of spine surgeons, they're saying, well, you know, you can't go the old route route because you know now it's minimally invasive and you can be up and running in, in a few weeks' time. Some of that is really good, and some of that is not so good. So there needs to be an indication for a particular procedure. Okay. Sometimes you're just not a candidate for a minimally invasive robotic-based procedure. You need to go an old procedure. So what I would say is stuff like stem cells and, and, and PRP and all those interventions, those are still relatively new, Mike. And again, I've had people come and see me that have had stem cell in their disc and they are significantly worse. And my medical team, because I can only base it on what my medical team are are saying in the research that's coming out, is yes, maybe five or 10 years from now, stem cells and and those fringe things and treatments and procedures may very well be the gold standard of treating back pain um, and other pathologies. But we're just not there yet because a spinal disc is not the same as a knee. Then if we're talking about disc replacements, and I can only speak from my own experience and from uh, my interaction with my surgical colleagues, my surgical colleagues are quite against lumbar disc replacements, so replacements in the lumbar spine. They are far more open to having cervical disc replacements because the cervical spine and the lumbar spine are two very different joints. A lot of people think that they're the same and they they function the same. They don't. The discs are different. The bones are different. The facet joints are different. Everything is completely different. And the lumbar spine is the highest load-bearing joint in the spine, right? So putting in a mobile disc there is not the same as putting in a mobile disc in the neck where you don't have the same amount of compressive uh, force and load bearing force going through the neck. So, um, Dr. McGill and I have spoken lots about lumbar disc replacements, and I think both of us there are on the same page. Both him and I have never really seen a successful lumbar disc replacement long term. Mm-hmm. Either they've subsided, they've moved, or they have—they've uh, actually fused. A lot of them have gone, you know, just naturally fused. Um, but that's not to say that within the next five or six years, lumbar discs will be incredibly, incredibly good and successful because as the procedure becomes uh, more mainstream, as people uh, become more skilled, uh, as the technology improves, um, I think you know we're going to see a huge amount of technological breakthroughs in the next five to 10 years in the world of spines. But um, I'm still a little bit against the uh, experimenting in your spine, because once you experiment with stem cells and PRP and all these type of things, uh, you can't go back, right? So once it's done, it's done. And uh, it can accelerate the degenerative process. A whole host of things could happen. So um, that's just my, my my two cents on it
0: when you're talking about that stuff and your bodybuilding background i immediately thought of ronnie coleman in my head unfortunately yeah. with his surgery but
1: yeah you know and 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 that's the thing you know i've, I've listened to a lot of uh, american podcasts and with with names i'm, I'm not going to mention people who I, I respect and they've had fantastic guests on and they talk about having stem cells going to south america getting it done Um, Again, I I just think sometimes if you've got to travel out of your own country to go have something done, it's potentially a little bit of a problem there, you know, it it doesn't sit comfortably with me. But hey, different strokes for different folks. Um, But what I know from the medical uh, in my medical involvement is that stem cells are just not at that stage just yet uh, to be able to um, do what the user hopes.
0: Sure. So my next question, I think I know your answer, but knowing what you know now, would you still have back surgery?
1: Have had 100%. 100%. In fact, I was on a podcast about a week or, two, or 10 days ago, and they asked me, they said, you know, Joel, how's your surgery been? And Mark, I will tell you, and I'm not ashamed or embarrassed to tell you and, and your viewers, but that year, from June 2020 to June 2021 was a life-changing 12 months for me. And um, there were there were the darkest moments, the darkest thoughts. I was on every drug you could think of. I was on every opioid. Um, I was supposed to be on opioids for ten, seven days. I was on them for seven weeks. Uh, and I'm not a guy that takes painkillers. Um, it was a horrendous, horrendous year. What kept me going, all right, beside, obviously, my ability to communicate with Dr. McGill, my, my friends, family, loved ones who were all, you know, looking after me, but my surgeon, right, my surgeon said to me, he said, Joel, this is going to be a rough year. And he said, you're going to have ups and downs. But he said, I promise you, when we are done, right, he said, I will make sure that your spine is the best it's ever been. Mark, I have to tell you now, I'm two years, what's two and a half years, Post my seventh surgery, I train six days a week. My spine is the absolute best it's ever been. But I respect my new spine. I look after it. But was the surgery a good decision? 100%. And you know, funny enough, if I had to go through it again, I wouldn't change a single thing. I'd go through all seven surgeries. I'd have the opioids. I'd have all the pain. I'd have all the dark moments because it's given me an insight into what a spine surgery patient goes through at the very, very worst. So now, as a spinal clinician, when someone comes in here and they say, "Joel, I don't know if you know what I'm talking about, but I got pain down my leg," I, you know, I don't know if you've ever, ever experienced that. I can sit back quite comfortably and say to them, "You know, I'm I'm on the same page. I know exactly what you're feeling and what you're experiencing. I know what bone pain is, Mark. I know what." Uh, neural tension and what we call neuropraxia, which was the pain I got after my second surgery. I know what that is like. Um, I know what happens when they remove screws and the the, the fusion construct actually uh, uh, breaks or or it it gives way. Uh, I know what instability is like. I know what muscle pain is like. I know what myofascial pain is. I can describe each one individually. So when a patient sits here, the best university I ever got. And please, I'm not recommending anyone to go and have this, (laughs) but were those seven spine surgeries over 12 months. And uh, just the very fact that I knew that my surgeon was the absolute number one guy in this country and wouldn't see me wrong. I'm living proof. So,
0: yeah, it, I mean, from treating patients and physical therapy realm if I've had the problem before, I can relate to that patient. When it's something I've never experienced, it's you learn what you learn in you know your medical schooling, but it's drastically different when you can relate more.
1: Hugely, it, it really is. And you know, funny enough, Mark, you say that, and it's so true because what I get to see now is especially if I'm seeing post-surgical patients, and I, I see a lot of that now because um, you know, I, I suppose just my experience and my understanding of, of spinal surgeries. And um, there's an element of comfort that uh, that, that an overriding comfort from the patient when they know what I've been through. And uh, in my my stories on on, on a YouTube channel, um, I just put a little bit of my spine surgery story up there. And uh, so many people have watched that and they come in here and they say, well, you know, they've seen what I've been through. And all of a sudden, me as the clinician and them as the patient we're on the same page. And if we're on the same page, they know that my ultimate uh, obsession is to help them in any way that I can. If I've got the tools, I'll help them with those tools. If I need to triage them to someone that's got different skills to me, I'll know exactly who to send them to. So um, it really was for me um, an absolute blessing. So the worst year of my life became probably The best year of my career.
0: So I'm going to shift focus a little bit away from surgery for a few questions here. So what are some common bad back habits people need to change?
1: Common bad back habits. I'm going to say an overriding thing, okay? Because it's going to depend from person to person. Some people will be able to bend over and pick up heavy items, and go many years with not having any problems. Other people will bend over to, you know, tie their shoelaces, and they'll be completely disabled. So, there's not one overriding rule with regards to movement, okay? But what I would say is this. I think people uh, tend to abuse their spine. They don't give their spine a lot of thought, and when there's no pain, right, it's very common and normal for people to not give their spine a second thought but i think especially looking at young kids today they sit for hours and hours in front of their laptops and computers and looking at their phones and it's just not a good thing i really don't think i think uh, you've got to get up you've got to move you've got to be more physically active um and you also need to respect the recovery process. If you are an individual that's physically active, don't go hell for, the, for leather six days a week or seven days a week just because you can. Because as the statement goes, or as the saying goes rather, right? you are only as good as your ability to recover. So you want to expose your spine to create an adaptation process to whatever it is, walking, running, weightlifting but you also then want to have sufficient recovery to allow the spine to adapt. Because it's when you push, 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 if that type A personality that just wants to, you know, achieve every time they go to the gym or, or the type B personality who doesn't want to do any physical exercise and sits all day, the whole day, you're going to get to the point where you're going to get to the cliff, cliff's edge and then you're just going to drop. So I think... You expose yourself to little bits of things all over the place. Change your posture, stand up, move around, bend your spine, arch your spine. Use a sit-stand desk if you do have a desk-based job. Understand that any one thing done too much is no good. So, And that's what I'm trying to tell because, again, I'm seeing a younger population now, um, unfortunately, with back pain. And uh, it's not uncommon for me to have an 11 or a 12 year old come and consult with me because they've got significant back pain. And after doing special investigations like scans and that type of stuff, they've got no major pathology in their spine. But they just sit all day on social media, on their computers, on Netflix and whatever else it is. And, you know, I don't know how old you are, Mike, but I'm, 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 you know, I'm midlife already. And I will tell you this. Um, when I was a youngster man, we were constantly active. You know, we were just moving around. We were never subjected to sitting the way that youngsters sit today. So again, very difficult for me to say one thing. You know, a lot of people would say, ah, don't bend your spine. Well, no, I get to see a lot of patients. In actual fact, they get respite from their pain by bending their spine, right? Because they're so fearful of bending their spine that all of their pain is extension or arching back pain, right? So we don't know, but... So the overriding thing for me is don't do too much of any one thing, whether that's being too sedentary, too active, okay? Make sure you recover, find that that middle ground and everything will be good.
0: Yeah, I would agree. I was much more moving positions when I was treating patients more like three years ago and I was fine. And now that I work for social media, I'm sitting a lot more and I get way more stiff and I get back aches now and... I have to take time position changes moving stretching breaks yeah it's just have uh, to man yeah and i was the type a personality i was younger and lifted too much and hurt my back a few times as well so yeah (laughs) i understand both realms there yeah there you go all right so do you ever recommend someone using a back brace
1: a back brace for back pain yeah no me personally i've never recommended it I've recommended a sacroiliac joint brace for people that I have assessed and I've determined that there is a pain generator coming from their pelvic ring or their sacroiliac joints. Um, again, just so that your, your users can can note what I'm talking about. So this is my, my pride and joy from Dynamic Disk Designs. It's a wonderful creation. So here's the lumbar spine, and these are the sacroiliac joints right over there, right? Now, what if if through my assessment I've determined that there's some type of pain generator, okay, I'm not going to say dysfunction, I'm not going to say uh, the sacroiliac joint is, is not functioning properly, but it, there's a pain generator there, right? Then, and we've determined that if we create stability by pushing on this, the, 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 the pelvis and creating that, that sort of tension at the sacroiliac joint, I will then ask them, uh, I'll put a, a sacroiliac joint belt, which is a belt that just goes around your pelvis and will determine if that does reduce their pain. I'll get them to use that for a certain period of time. Um, but a back brace itself, like the old school back braces, I, I, I don't recommend. And, and in actual fact, Uh, Unless someone's got a fracture or there's a pathological something going on in their spine, um, I would probably recommend against using a back brace um, because you want to try and train an individual to build up their own back brace, which is just their own musculature. And again, in certain instances, if I've got a really, really frail, disabled individual of, you know, uh, an older age individual... Uh, that requires something like that i usually will send them off to uh, a suitable medical professional like one of my surgeons who may then discuss it with me and say we need to put them in a brace but me personally no
0: yeah you're you're just weakening your core muscles essentially if you don't use one if you are using one i mean
1: yeah you gotta you gotta you gotta physically you know uh activate those muscles, you gotta you gotta get stronger, man. You really do. And and I just think a back brace is a is a cop out. You know, (laughs) unless as I say, fracture, different ball game. Um but that's not what we're talking. We're talking back pain. And I'm like, nah, that's not not it's not a resolution.
0: So you primarily work with spinal prehab and rehab patients after surgery. So what are some things you have them focus on?
1: Well, I work with everyone, right? So well, I, I yes,
0: know, I should say that you do, but. <laughs> I work
1: with everyone. Yeah, I work with every type of spinal patient you can think of, right? But if you're talking prehab, rehab, surgery, okay? Post-surgery, Mark, is very important, okay? Especially if you've had a fusion uh, or even a, a, a discectomy or a decompression, whatever you've had, because any type of spine surgery regardless of its magnitude, is invasive, okay? And your initial healing time, like we spoke about, the virtual surgery, that initial healing time, uh, post-surgery is extremely important. If you've got a fusion, you don't want to disrupt the the fusing process, right? And you also don't want to disrupt the hardware, right? Because the hardware's in your bone, but it's over time that the bone will fuse around the hardware. So in that initial stage, and I've had people four weeks post spine fusion, they're swinging a, a twenty or thirty uh, kilogram or a you know a fifty pound kettlebell, um, and I'm like, that's insane, and they've said, ah, oh, but you know my physical therapist or the surgeon said I'm, I can do anything I want, okay, and that is just not true, right? You need some time to heal. So I always use Dr. McGill's principles post-surgery, so uh, spine hygiene and the movement tools. So that's where we can migrate the stress away from the surgical site and onto other joints in the body, such as the hips and the shoulders. And I don't get people to never move their spine, but generally when you have a fusion surgery, there's rules in that initial post-operative stage. And it's called no BLTs, no bending, no lifting, no twisting, right? And it's only when you get to a certain stage post-surgery can you then start exposing yourself to a little bit of bending, a little bit of twisting, and a little bit of lifting. The thing that confuses people is that you can have the fusion and you could very easily bend, lift, and twist and have no pain. But it doesn't mean that you're doing the fusion construct any good, right? Right? because when the pain sets in, it's too late. And that's what people don't realize. There's that that disconnect because they think, oh, if I bend and there's pain, I'm going to stop. But if I bend and there's no pain, oh, I can continue doing it. Well, no, not really, because we need certain images and scans to determine, can you bend, lift, and twist, right? So if the fusion is taking place, hey, go ahead, and then you can do that. So I really use a lot of that Pre surgery, Mike, it's a little bit of a different story. It depends where that person is. Um, You know, are they two weeks away from surgery? And again, I think at that stage, I'm going to offer them, you know, the best advice I can to just not do anything crazy before surgery. But I think mentally at that stage, they are already protecting their back. They they are not doing crazy stuff because they're going for surgery because the pain is intractable. They've got neurological deficit, so I'm not um, I'm not massively bothered, right pre surgery. So if they booked in and it's two three weeks, you know, just continue doing what I've told you to do. But post surgery, um, I've got a hashtag when I do get onto social media. It's hashtag everything matters. And for me, everything matters, right? So post-surgery, man, how you get onto your bed, how you roll onto your bed, how you get out of bed, how you brush your teeth, how you put on your shoes. Do you use a grabber? Don't you use a grabber? I've seen successful rehabilitation and I've seen unsuccessful rehabilitation post-surgery. And um, I can tell you, spine hygiene and movement tools matter massively.
0: Yeah, uh... My mom actually had spine surgery. Not, she just had a, a disectomy, um a few years back. And I remember she is type A personality, but luckily she followed her precautions and she was she's good now. <laughs> good. I, was, good. I good. was pretty fearful for her. I was like, oh, gosh, she's going to do something.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, you, you got it. It's just because, you know, I look at it like this, right? And I, again, I can only speak for me, but my surgeon gave me a second chance, right? He literally, he realigned my spine. He he made me taller. He should have made me five inches taller, not half an inch, right? But he raised up my spine. He pulled my spine back. So if you look at the alignment of my spine now, he's actually put me in a better position to preserve the discs above my surgical site. You know, a lot of people, and we're going to go off topic here, and I don't want to get involved in this. It's a really big topic. But a lot of people say, oh, you can't go for a fusion because you get adjacent segment disease. That means the joints above and below the fusion site will then start to go and they'll eventually have to increase the, the fusion construct. I don't believe that. Right. Because it's how the surgeon, it's what hardware they use, how they realign your spine. And we've seen on my MRIs that my spine above the fusion has actually improved right? So he's given me a second chance. So I am very, very aware and respectful of my new spine. I really am. And that's what I'm trying to impart onto spine surgery patients or even back pain patients. If we get you out of pain, we're giving you a chance. Respect your new spine, right? That's what we're trying to tell you. Because what you did before the pain, you can't go back to doing, you know, maybe you can and you'll get away with it until you can't, and when you can't, it might come back worse. You know, you don't know. So again, and mike it depends because everyone's different. Some people, as you as you rightfully know, are, are, are A-type personalities, and they're just going to go. You know, they're going to be the bull seeing the red, and they're going to go for it regardless of what you tell them. And so, our only thing that we can do is guide them and give them the information as as adults. They need to make those decisions themselves. But I encourage everyone, if you've had spine surgery and you're good, you've been given a second chance, respect your new spine. It's worth it. It's totally worth it.
0: So my last question, if someone is considering having back surgery, what is one thing you'd like to say to them?
1: Do your due diligence. Don't rush if you don't need to, and it's not emergency, but do your due diligence. Know the surgeon, ask the surgeon as many questions as you want. It's your right. It's the patient's right, right? It's not the surgeon's right to turn around and say, I don't want to answer those questions. He or she can, but then they've clearly defined for you that they're not your surgeon, right? And uh, if I may say, follow the spine exchange because you will get way more information over the next few months regarding how you can speak to surgeons, what you should say, all the different surgeons. But I would say, if you're in a position, get as many opinions as you can and ask them as many questions as you can. And intuition tells us things, right? If you're sitting with a surgeon and there's just something inside of you there that is just telling you, it's not for me, then it's probably not for you. You probably need to go sit with someone else. So, uh, and if I may say this, and I could be rubbing up a whole bunch of medical professionals the wrong way, but if there's a surgeon out there that spends more time on social media versus doing surgery, that for me is a problem, right? It really is. Now, you know, if they're doing social media because they're putting out worthwhile information, fantastic, right? I, I, I get that. But if they're doing social media, you know, to show how they dance in the uh, operating room, I'm like, uh, <laughs> you just, you know, and there are surgeons who do that, uh, Mike, sure. they really are. And, and again, each to their own, I'm not judging them, what I'm saying to the general public is just use some common sense, which we know is not so common anymore, right? Because we get so uh, bombarded by all of this information on social media, you know, and, and people are entertaining us and they're trying to combine their entertainment value with their academic knowledge or work experience. But hey, man, old school sometimes works. The, the quiet people who just do their work and hone their skills every single day, you know, working with real patients, you know, maybe that's just those are the people who you need to speak to
0: yeah I will admit since we are very social media focused at Bob and Brad we actually like let our clinics go a while back so we're focused on this now because yeah it, it gets to be a lot trying to handle both sides of
1: things oh, well absolutely and 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 I respect that right you either do one or you do the other it's 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 but but to really do both at a very very high level uh, listen. I, I'm quite strict with my time management and I'm a really, really busy individual, but I, I just wouldn't have time to do both. You know, at the Spine Exchange, we've got a, a an independent crew that does our social media for us, right? I don't do the social media or, you know, I maybe send them a clip and I say, right, say this or do this, but I just don't have the time to do all of that. But if you're doing social media as, as you guys are, as a form of bringing information to the general public, I think that's absolutely superb, right? And it needs to be celebrated. But what I'm saying is you get a busy spine surgeon, right? Dancing in the OR or showing off, you know, something that's completely irrelevant to spine surgery. I'm just thinking really like, because I know my spine surgeon and my my, my surgical team who I work with. And these guys and gals, Mike, are really busy. Really, and you know, and when they've got three or four significant surgical cases in a day, they're not sitting there. Even when we sit in the nurses' station between each setup of 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 the surgery, right when they bring the patient in, he's you know, my surgeons aren't sitting there and you know saying, "Hey Joel, come let's do a little thing for 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 TikTok." It's you know, they're sitting there and they're planning what's next. They've just done a three-level fusion. Now what they're going to do is maybe they're going to need to do a a removal of a vertebra and do something like a corpectomy and they're working it out. They're sitting there and the, the, the amount of brain power that's going in to what they do by the end of their day, they are done. They are shattered, but their outcomes are just outstanding. So again, I just think people need to, you know, weigh up pros and cons. There's entertainment and there's people that, uh, you know, are masters of their craft. But that's just my my opinion.
0: So do you want to mention your websites again where people can find you at?
1: Absolutely. So if you want to find me, the easiest way to find me is performancerx.co.uk or backfitpro.com, and you go to Master Clinicians. Um, You'll find me under the UK section, uh, and also I'm part of uh, Dr. McGill's uh, executive teaching team, so I'm part of you'll find me there as well. Um, And the Spine Exchange, that's T-H-E-S-P-I-N-E, then X-Change. So it's only one E, thespinexchange.com. And if you join up, the best thing for thespinexchange.com is if the viewers join up to our newsletter, um, because as we release more and more resources over the the coming months, uh, they will be informed about new interviews that are going up on YouTube and you know, discussions with surgeons and pain management consultants. Um, so they'll be able to find a lot of uh, stuff there, Mike.
0: Well, thank you for joining us today.
1: Mike, uh, it's an absolute pleasure. I must tell you, I was looking very forward to this because uh, understanding uh, you know, what you wanted to get out of it and, and, and the questions that you've asked me uh, have been fantastic. And I, I really hope that what I've been able to Uh, share has been and will be useful for you your program and most importantly your viewers
0: well thanks again
1: thank you mike